Two and a Half Admins, episode 146. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara article plug, Alan, is OpenZFS, your data and the challenge of ransomware. Yeah, so we have a, an article here that talks about how to protect your data and deal with some of the challenges of ransomware and the ways to be able to quickly recover from it using ZFS. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the big news over the last week has been the Apple Vision Pro. So Apple had their WWDC event, and in the keynote, they announced some Macs and stuff that was all quite boring. But they announced their long-awaited, is it VR, is it AR? It's some sort of headset. It's $3,500. I don't think you two are very impressed by this. I am not very impressed with it. Although, I, you know, I have to admit, my first reaction to it was purely based on the appearance of it. You know, I saw the promo shots, and it just looks like a 1970s-style, you know, scuba mask. Yeah. And uh, so I, I see these people, you know, wearing these things, and all you see is just this giant, faintly glowing blue scuba mask. And all I could think was that scene from one Harvey Birdman episode. Uh, name, occupation, specialty, lizard man, lizard man, and uh, lizard man. Some of the technical stuff might be relatively impressive, but it's definitely not something I'm going to run out and buy, and it doesn't seem like they're really assuming that many people are going to run out and buy. I'm sure they'd be thrilled if there was just a giant yes. land rush at $3,500 a pop. <laughs> yeah. Thinking about what I would want from AR, definitely I'd want to be able to use it more than you can possibly comfortably wear a giant heavy headset like that, and I'm sure the battery life can't be that great either. No, you're looking at about two hours with an external battery pack that you have to put in your pocket. It looks like it's just a power bank. Well, I do appreciate putting that in my pocket instead of wearing it on my head and make my neck supported all day. Yeah. That was probably the right move, but we've seen things kind of like this. This is, you know, a further iteration. I've tried them for playing video games. I've tried a couple of different ones and I can see the appeal for a little bit, but it definitely seems like the kind of thing that I would get bored of and would start collecting dust awfully quickly. Partly because I just don't have time to play video games that much. And so that's why they're not that interesting to me. And something AR could be, adding that context, especially from a company that cares more about privacy than, say, Google, and wouldn't maybe fill my augmented reality with ads. At some point, you know, your kind of sci-fi version of this where when you're walking around a conference talking to people, it can remind you what that person's name is and how you know them or or things like that. But then you're talking really something closer to the form factor of Google Glasses, but maybe even less obvious. And at that point, it's something completely different than what these are. I think it's a bit precious to say, you know, somebody who won't fill my AR experience with ads just because it's Apple. All that really means is that the ads that your AR experience is filled with will all be for Apple products. Or more likely services. The weird thing about this is, both the physical form factor and the price point really make this look a lot more like Microsoft's HoloLens project than you know any of the, the gaming VR stuff that we're accustomed to. Yeah. That's just a weird thing for Apple, of all companies, to lob into the field. The big thing that was potentially great about HoloLens was definitely you know the, the augmented reality aspect of it, the idea that you would be able to, in a work capacity... Like you can look at a bolt on a pump and it literally just pops up a flag telling you like, you know, what the torque specification should be for the bolt, what the bolt, you know, what it holds down, you know, other bolts that you should be removing first before you move that one, you know, whatever. Basically, yep. 
it's really, really interesting in terms of its concept for how it could empower a physical worker, like a blue collar person who has to work with complex systems. Apple is just a very strange company to expect that kind of product from. But at that price point, I mean, if you want to sell a significant number of them, I don't know who other than deep pocket and enterprises is going to buy them. Yeah, and I really see that taking a step further of like, there's an air tag on the each wrench, and it now tells me where to find the right wrench to go work on that bolt and so on as well. But yeah, looking at the form factor and the price, really my first thought is like, this is like super new and not fully developed idea yet. And that's not what we're used to seeing from Apple. They don't usually have a beta product. We're also not used to seeing Apple put out a product that, you know, should you incorporate that product into your Apple lifestyle, somebody like me, their first thought is going to be Lizard Man, Lizard Man, and uh, Lizard Man. That just does not seem very Jobsian. Well, if you compare it to some of the other similar devices, it's a lot more rounded and, and smooth. But yeah, it does seem awfully half-baked for what Apple's aesthetic used to be as far as, you know, we don't release it until it's perfect kind of thing. Yeah, you'd think Apple would be trying to put out something more along the lines of Google Glass, only it looks like Oakley made it. Yeah. Or, I don't know, maybe LGBT-friendlier Oakley made it. Right. <laughs> but point is, again, I don't disagree that 1970s scuba mask is a better aesthetic than, you know, what we've seen out of most of the, the previous VR helmet products, but... <laughs> still seems to fall a little short of what Apple's usually going for. So this is not another iPhone moment then. This is not them taking an existing class of product and refining it for the masses. Well, basically, it seems like they if they had released an iPhone beta when the iPhone wasn't actually that good yet, and then maybe didn't end up winning the war and taking over half the market share. Well, the thing is that the first iPhone wasn't very good. It didn't have an app store. It didn't have copy-paste. Sure, but it... There was no real Android yet at that time, and, you know, it kicked the pants out of BlackBerry. Or Windows Phone, remember that? Yes, I, that's what I had at the time. That is also what I had, and yeah, the, the iPhone was way better hands down. I didn't actually get one until the uh, 3G, but oh my god, what a night and day difference. I had an HTC Touch, so it was a touchscreen, but other than the unlock screen, you needed to use the stylus because the keyboard wasn't big enough for you to actually press letters with your giant thumbs. <laughs> To be fair to Apple, there there is some room for them having made some improvements here. I saw a Twitter thread from a HoloLens engineer who was pretty dismissive of the device and said, you know, we've been there, done that, and I think Apple's going to find out the same thing that you know Microsoft did about how much the world really wants this device. He ended up deleting the thread because it turns out some of his assumptions had been wrong. HoloLens was was a pass-through AR device. You could actually see through the screen, and it could also project images onto the screen. Apple's device is not a pass-through. It, it is completely opaque, and while you do have an augmented reality, everything is projected onto the screen. So you are seeing the camera's view of your surroundings. Of course, that assumes that the camera continues working because if it should stop for some reason, then you're just going to be blind staring at something an inch away from your eyeballs. Yeah, and uh, it means that, you know, you're subject to the frame rate of the camera and so on. And just, yeah, if the battery dies, then you're blind and you can't see out anymore. There are some interesting things to think about in terms of uh, attack possibilities there as well. Like if you're going to envision these things are being used for something important enough that you would equip a bunch of people, you know, with these $3,500 devices, 
when you're talking about pass-through imagery and seeing what all is around you, an attacker who gets control of the system might be able to put something obnoxious on top of the image, but they can't make you unable to see what you're doing 100 feet off the ground on top of, you know, a ladder or whatever. Whereas with this design, anything from equipment failure to, you know, outright attacks, you can blind the folks using it until they actually, you know, reach up and take it off, which that's not necessarily so much a concern if you're just buying this device to, you know, play silly little role-playing games in your den and hope nobody walks in and sees you and how ridiculous you look, but it seems like a problem in an industrial setting. And again, at $3,500 a pop, I don't see many of these going anywhere but potentially industrial settings. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Axiom. Go to axiom.co slash 25A, support the show, and start a 14-day free trial. Axiom unlocks observability at any scale. Developers are constantly taught to worry about how much they're logging due to providers using archaic architectures where ingest, storage, and querying are expensive. Axiom's data store was built from the ground up to be as efficient as possible for what developers need most, the ability to ingest and immediately query all the data their services produce. The $99 monthly plan offers 5 terabytes of monthly ingest, 90 days retention, unlimited users, sources, and hosts, and Splunk-like querying with APL. Start there and scale up to meet whatever data needs your company has. So go to axiom.co slash 25A, create an account, and start your 14-day free trial. You can do better than legacy logging with Axiom. Some CurseForge accounts might be compromised slash hacked and are uploading malicious files. This is a thread on Reddit. I think before we go any further, the first thing that we have to cover is what is CurseForge? Because I'm not going to lie to you, I had to Google it. CurseForge is a repository of uh, Minecraft hacks and mods. It is very popular within that community. In one sense, this is the same kind of thing that we always report on, right? It's a supply chain slash watering hole attack. You know, you, you get the watering hole and you nail all the animals to come to drink at it. But in this case, we're not talking about a relatively small number of mostly software developers getting hit. We're talking about one of the largest gaming communities on the planet are the victims of this particular watering hole attack. And it includes an incredible number of children as well as people who are not technical folks. So that makes this a, a bit different and uh, kind of adds a little scare factor to it to me that, that isn't typically there in the more technically focused watering hole attacks. Yeah, so CurseForge does more than just Minecraft as well. They have like World of Warcraft and a whole list of other games that they cover. But what's especially interesting about this one is looking at what they can do as the next step. So if you manage to compromise one of the mods for these games, part of the things that people are downloading software and expecting to actually execute it. So it makes it much easier to compromise someone's machine with a Trojan version of a, an application when they're actually expecting to download and install software, not unexpectedly things pop up or whatever. And so these people are purposely seeking out executable code to run, and you're just piggybacking onto that. But those particular people's computers might be more valuable to compromise if you're after stealing Steam accounts or Blizzard accounts or things that might actually have monetary value because they have those games, different currencies in them that might actually have a resale value or just an ability to extract actual money from the account. You mentioned World of Warcraft, and you can absolutely, if you get hold of somebody's World of Warcraft account, you can uh, 
it's like stripping somebody's car for you know and, and leaving it on blocks on the side of the road. You can sell off their armor and weapons and all their gold disturbingly quickly and basically eradicate call it the accrued value of years of gameplay in an hour. And you know, stolen Steam accounts with thousands of dollars worth of games licensed in them and so on and definitely something that we've seen traded around before on the type of forums where the people who upload these viruses hang out. And yeah, it's it's interesting to see this attack going after something more general. You know, we've always talked about how if you could compromise a, a major news website and get the right kind of virus piggybacking on a browser vulnerability or something to infect giant swaths of the general public. But this seems like they might have managed to basically be able to do that with a, a big swath of the uh, gaming. And in this case, it's arguably kind of worse because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of this stuff will auto update. Once you have installed the mods from CurseForge into your game, your game can check for new updates and automatically download and apply them. So this is even worse than, you know, one of the the obvious things that came to my mind, just because of the name of the site, CurseForge, right? Like it's hard not to immediately think of SourceForge 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, SourceForge used to embed, let's just call it grayware into, uh, you know, a sort of header that they appended onto the the software binaries that you could download from there is supposed to be open source software, but the company that was managing SourceForge at the time themselves was injecting stuff in there that you absolutely did not want. So let's just go ahead and call it malware. Just because it wasn't created by some group that called itself Friends of the Dead Cow or something doesn't mean that it wasn't malware. It was malware. However, even though, you know, when you, if you go to SourceForge looking for software, you expect to find the software you want and download and install it. That's like a one-time thing, and you're not getting automatic updates from SourceForge. SourceForge was also the reach, even though it went a, a lot further than software developers. You know, lots of normal people went looking for perfectly normal software at SourceForge. It's still not the kind of reach you get from, you know, people that want to play Minecraft. So you have got a gigantic number of people the majority of whom are really not technical at all, it may even in fact be children. And not only can they get this from going to install a mod, they can get nailed just because they've installed a mod that used to be fine, but now there's a Trojan update. And if they play Minecraft at all, it may download the Trojan update to one of their mods and now nail their computer. And now you have you know issues with... Uh, some of the code is supposed to be self-replicating. Like Alan said, you know we, we don't know how... It can be weaponized to look for monetizable, you know, things, the things that you can steal from people and sell. Uh, we don't know how it can be used as a springboard for more attacks, but wow, that, that was a good get. You know, whichever red team assholes managed to compromise CurseForge, I hate you. Good job. Especially that particular audience is kind of that middle area where they're savvy enough to be able to get a mod for a game and install it and know how to, that process should work, but not necessarily technically savvy enough to know how to fix it when this goes wrong or how to, to keep this kind of thing from happening. There's some interesting notes in the Reddit thread where apparently the developer accounts for the people that are uploading the actual mods generally do have two-factor authentication, and this attack looks like it might be bypassing that. Like one of the developers said, you know, it shows in our account that someone logged in from over here, but I didn't get a 2FA thing on my phone, so how'd they do that? So it might, like they're saying, not be specific accounts being compromised so much as something on the service itself that's allowing them to bypass the two-factor authentication or maybe just bypass login altogether. 
This is a guess. I do not have concrete knowledge, but just looking at the reported scale of this issue, I find it very unlikely that it's just compromised developer accounts. I think there's got to be at least some element of backdoor compromise involved. Well, if it is just individual accounts, it kind of reminds me of NPM and PyPy and stuff. We've seen so many cases where malware essentially has been delivered to hundreds or thousands of developers in that case. And it comes down to this newer idea of direct from developer to user without a distribution maintainer in in the uh, pipeline, I suppose. So like, uh, you know, one of the NPM ones I'm thinking of was from early on in the Ukraine conflict where they made it look at the IP address of the machine it's running on. If it thought it was Russia, it would just RM, RF, everything. Mm. And kind of protestware or whatever. And in that particular case, it was the legitimate developer who uploaded that change. And so it's maybe slightly different than this case where it wasn't the game developer who trojaned the the thing being downloaded, but it's the same kind of attack where it shows kind of what we've seen even with maybe hacked GitHub accounts and so on. We want to maybe look at having the software that comes from these developers be signed so we know it's actually from that developer. Although we've also seen problems with that. What was it? the um, One of the Bitcoin ones. Do you remember when the developer's machine got compromised and they got his PGP key yeah. that he uses to sign the software updates? And so part of the problem is even if we do institute code signing and so on to, to have proof that you know this update came actually from the developer who I expect it to come from. The problem is if they don't have the right security and, and policies on their side, then if their key gets compromised, then that authenticity isn't actually enforced anymore. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication, and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com 25A. A huge story that has even made the mainstream news is Statement on AI Risk. This is from a bunch of people who call themselves AI scientists and some other notable figures. I see Bill Gates' name is in there. And it's a very short statement. I can read the whole thing. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. You'll notice what that statement does not say is anything about mitigating the risk of widespread oppression. (laughs) using AI tools. Yeah, this feels like a real sort of look at this shiny thing over here and distract you from the reality of what the risks of AI are. Because, I mean, I'm just not having this, man, that AI, I mean, like you've talked so many times about the flatworm comparison, Jim, like it's not anywhere near being general AI, is it? It's it's not going to be pulling a Skynet 
even in 10, 20 years. No, it's not. We should want to understand how it works a bit better before we start just using it for everything. <laughs> I'm kind of on the, the side of maybe we should slow down and pause and think about this and come up with some rules before we keep going because we don't want to try to put the genie back in the bottle after it's been let out. Well, the real genie that we're worried about here isn't the AI. It's how humans interpret it and respond to it and, yes. you know, the wacky fake things they believe about it. Exactly. Humans in general are so willing to believe, oh, well, the computer's much smarter than I am and, you know, wiser and blah, blah. And, oh, yeah, well, if that's what it said, then that's what we do. I'm going to get yelled at for going political here. But, I mean, this is, this is the same human failing that keeps leading us to fascism. You know, it, it's easy. You have the, the big, strong, smart thing that will tell you all the things that you need to hear to make everything right. And you do what the big, strong, smart thing said. That's the biggest concern really about AI right now is it's such an effective way to launder oppression coming from just plain old humans. You can use AI as an incredible force multiplier. If you are a small organization or a single person with a fabulous amount of resources, but not a whole lot of humans to carry out the things that, you know, those resources might enable you to basically try to buy as a program to enact. And, and AI can do a lot of that for you. And does it do it well? No. But for a comparison there, you know, email spam doesn't work well either. You've got conversion rates that are usually well under one in a thousand, but it's cheap and it's easy and spammers aren't ethical. They don't care. So they nail you with it anyway, because it still makes them money. We have similar issues with AI that doesn't work that well, but can work very cheaply at massive scale. And you know, at some point you have to start asking, okay, the people who control this thing, do they care whether it sucks or not? And frequently they really don't. Well, and my bigger concern is do they understand why it sucks and gives the wrong answer? And they don't. So they couldn't even fix it if they wanted to. <laughs> and so maybe we should not be putting it in charge of driving cars and stuff just yet. And we should not be seeing companies like Automatic, the WordPress people, making a new tool to write AI blog posts for you. It's also slightly funny to see that the third and fourth names on this safe.ai website are... The CEO of Google DeepMind and the CEO of OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT. It's like, I understand why they're signing it, but I'm like, and you're the people most responsible for making everybody believe that it can take over the world. Yeah, exactly. That's why this whole thing is just the, the big shiny over here, distract people with this talk of pandemics and nuclear war, whereas the reality is that it's not. It's just going to shit up the web with AI blog posts and put people out of work and oppress people. I don't even know so much that I would agree that it, the AI is putting people out of work. You know, it's the greedy assholes on top yeah. who would rather spend peanuts to get complete garbage out of AI than pay a living wage to a human who might be expected to do a good job. And again, they just don't care. And that's the real problem. That's why jobs are getting lost. It's not exactly the AI's fault. It's the way the people who run the system are using it. It's just a tool, right? And it's whatever you do with it. We could use this tool to do great things for humanity, potentially. Finding medicines is, is the classic example. I'm a little bit skeptical as to whether any of those medicines are actually going to work out, but I think it's definitely worth a shot throwing some computers at that. Maybe we'll find some new antibiotics and fix that problem. 
Yeah, so basically you can use AI the same way that in the 90s we used, uh, you know, crowdsourced intelligence. Mm. Whether you're talking about, you know, SETI or folding at home, you never really trust the answers that you get back from your crowdsourced intel. Again, whether you're talking about SETI or folding at home. However, when you have like five or six different reports all come back in from different people who processed that unit and said, oh, hey, you know, this one's a hit. This unit is one of the ones that won the lottery. Well, that's a cheap way for you to have a much smaller group of things to go and check to see, was this one really a lottery winner or not? And that can be, you know, a, again, it's it's a massive potential force multiplier. The trick is in making sure that the force multiplier is used to multiply good forces and not bad ones. As far as the whole thing of, you know, putting this silly little single sentence statement out and getting a bunch of really well-known people to sign it and making it all about literally extinction and not anything else. To your point earlier, Joe, you know, it, it feels a lot like a heavyweight boxer just absolutely pounding the Jesus out of you and going, look over there, that guy's got a knife. Yeah. You know, well, it just continues to just absolutely obliterate your face. Yeah, nothing about climate change in this particular statement, eh? Even though AI contributes to it massively, because how many GPUs are running this thing? How much electricity is, is being burnt for the purposes of AI? I'm glad you mentioned that, because that brings us back to another thing. I do think it's reasonable to be concerned about the potential for AI as an adversary in the future. It's, it's not ridiculous to be concerned about that. However, I, I think the most reasonable scenarios, they all of necessity involve self-replication, like a, a virus or a worm. Without that, you just don't really have that, how am I going to isolate this thing so that I can take it out kind of an issue. And right now, AI code is not really in a place where it can do a lot in the way of self-replication because it's so hard to find the environment that it can function in at any real speed. Because again, for the gray goose scenario, where basically AI just decides it's going to take out humanity and it actually has any kind of a shot of doing it, it, it needs to be able to self-replicate a malicious AI all over the place where you didn't expect to have it. And it's just too expensive and too hard to get set up now. Like You don't really have to worry that an evil AI is going to take over your PC because it won't be able to train itself on what little hardware you have. Yeah, there's not large collections of GPUs laying around for it to take over and start using. And don't get me wrong. I mean, there are some really neat things that you can do with AI on your own PC, even without a GPU at all. Even more so, of course, if you have a, a GPU and unfortunately, preferably for that an NVIDIA GPU, because right now things tend to be pretty locked up in terms of what hardware the libraries are designed to work with. But being able to do neat things on your PC is not the same thing as being able to run GPT-4 or BARD and train it. You're not doing that on your gaming PC, even if you blew 20 grand on the thing. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. 
Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send any questions. Summer's here, so there's going to be less to talk about. So we'll probably be covering more of your questions over the next couple of months. The silly season. Yep. But as I always say, the shorter the better. Not one sentence, but, you know, don't send us a whole essay. It's more work for me to summarize. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue which is what Joshua has done. He writes, I'm thinking about building a personal NAS. The size of the motherboard I'm after means it won't come with enough SATA connections. Will ZFS and the NAS in general be reliable with four SATA hard disks off the motherboard and four more off a PCIe expansion card? The short version is yes, that's perfectly fine. The only real potential drawback is using Mobo SATA and then, uh, you know, a, I assume we're talking about like a cheap, you know, $25, $30 card off of Amazon or Newegg or what have you. It will work absolutely fine. You will be limited in your top end throughput. That could potentially disappoint you if you're, you know, wanting to connect eight drives. If you want to get the full throughput, you could possibly get out of those drives. The high end, uh, you'll need a proper host bus adapter, like one of the, the LSI 9000 series models. Those can generally support up to about two gigabytes a second of throughput maximum, whereas the cheap SATA controller on your motherboard or on one of those $20 or $30 cards, it's this generally going to top out at somewhere around five or 600 megabytes per second. And that's total through the card. That's not each drive. Yeah, and the advantage of getting the more expensive PCIe card, like the LSI 9207 or whatever, Definitely don't go spending more than like $300. You want the HBA, the plain disk controller, not with RAID functionality. And those will have basically two SAS ports, which you get the right fan out cable, will give you eight SATA ports and you can run all eight drives off the one PCIe card. And then maybe depending on your use case with the NAS, just run whatever you're going to boot off of off of the, the SATA motherboard ports. But yeah, like my first NAS was almost exactly that. It was six drives, so it was four off the motherboard and two more off the cheapest PCIe SATA expansion card from StarTech that I bought off Monoprice. So to give you a little bit better price expectation, when Alan says don't spend more than $300, absolutely don't spend more than $300. But honestly, if you are already considering like running half of it off of Mobo SATA and the other half off of like a $20 card, don't spend more than 100 you can absolutely find LSI cards that will support well over a gigabyte a second of throughput for under $100 on Amazon right now, at least assuming you're shopping in the U.S. Yeah, and if you're looking on like eBay, you can get good used LSI cards quite cheap. And there are also Chinese knockoffs of the older LSI cards that are super cheap and really do seem to be the same thing. Do you not have to worry about PCIe lanes, though, at that point? Not if you're staying under like two gigabytes a second total, right? Yeah. So yeah, like a, a 1x PCIe SATA controller from StarTech or whatever that you'll spend $20 to $40 on will be perfectly fine. If you're really after juicing all the performance out of it, then a real controller is better. But unless you've got eight SSDs plugged into it, you probably don't even care. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback. 
You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.